Do you have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. I've got a question about a roof. Is it possible for just part of the roof to be peeled off and re-shingled only about a 10-foot section and blended in with the other roof rather than having to do the whole roof again? I have a need for an electrical heater for our basement room, and it's only used several times a year. Could you discuss uh, electrical space heaters? My husband and I are hanging a lighting fixture, and we're trying to take the old fixture down. I was wondering if it's safe to cut the wires with scissors on the electrical Electricity is turned off completely to the room that we're working on. Do you have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another hour of Ken the Contractor. Along with Ken Patterson, I'm Jim Britt, and we're here each week at this time to answer the questions that are important to you, today's homeowner. As Ken always says, a house is what you build, a home is what you make it. If you'd like to reach Ken, you can reach him anytime at 800-614-2975 with your questions or email your questions to our website. That's KenTheContractor.com. Are your trees, shrubs, and maybe your general landscaping, are they really an asset or are they a liability to you around the house? Now that I have you thinking a little bit about that, let's discuss that. Because I would suggest to you that there are times of the year that they are both an asset and a liability. We're in hurricane season, folks, around the country. Not only for those of you that live in the coastal regions, but for those of you that live inward, we know that we have high winds that blow across this country with deratios and other storms that we have seen in the last several weeks and will continue to see during these warmer months. And that means that we have the potential for damage to our landscaping. And if our landscaping is being damaged, in many cases, it creates damage to our property, to our outbuildings, our garages, and, yes, even to our home proper. So we need to spend a little bit of time thinking about landscaping in a different light. Typically, we think about installing it, fertilizing it, getting it to grow, look green, bloom, do all the wonderful things that Andre Viette and others in their gardening programs talk about. I want to talk to you about some things you need to be doing that will help maintain the structure on our property and also help protect these trees and shrubs to some extent. As I said, we're certainly in high wind season with summer storms and with hurricane potential up and down our east and west coast and gulf coast parts of the country. We also know that when these storms affect the coastal regions, that many times they move inward, and we still have substantial winds and high rains as a result of those. I want you to spend a little bit of time. Go out and do it today. Spend a little bit of time just examining first your trees that are on site. We're going to work from trees all the way down to the foundation plants. But I want you particularly to look at trees. Most of us just enjoy the shade and the comfort that they offer to us, the beauty, the shape of the tree in our yard, but rarely do we spend any time looking at the amount of dead wood. That's old dead branches that are still standing within those trees. Nor do we look at how those lines, those trees have grown in perhaps to power lines, to telephone lines. And if you have private lines on your property, meaning that it's a distribution network within your land or from your home to a pole, the power company rarely pays or the the phone company pays a lot of attention to that until there's an issue. They pay a lot of attention to their primary transmission lines, those that may be in front of your house, down an alleyway or so forth. But you need to pay attention to how these trees and the canopies have developed. Do they have an impact on wires? Are they likely to be falling on a car if this deadwood falls out of them or if a limb is severed? Are they hanging over the roof or the house? Do you have a tree that has quite a bit of age on it, perhaps, that may have a tendency in softened ground from heavy rains to blow over on the house? These are things you need to pay attention to now. And if you see that action is needed, I'm not going to recommend that you climb up there on a rope or a ladder and take your trusty chainsaw. 
because that's how injuries are occurred, unless you are a pro at this. I am going to suggest, though, if you note you have an issue, that you contact an arborist and you contact people that specialize in properly pruning and trimming trees to cut out the dead wood or to get rid of green limbs that are creating a dangerous situation for your home, your buildings, or power lines. Take care of those before the storms arrive. If you do that, you may find you'll have no or very little damage to your property as a result of these trees and the dead wood that exists within them. Now let's come down a little bit. Let's talk about some of the foundation plants and shrubs. We have a tendency in many cases, and I'm guilty of this myself from time to time, to let these become overgrown. They're green, they're growing, they're doing what they're supposed to. It's part of my yard landscaping. You know what? It looks good. But we forget about the fact that as they grow, they tend to get closer and closer to the house. They may be rubbing against paint. So if you have a painted surface, it's creating some damage there. As they wear on the paint, now you're allowing moisture to get in because that protective surface has been worn off. Whatever your wood siding may, your siding may be, whether it's wood, whether it happens to be painted block, and you need to take some action to correct that. So by keeping these materials, the landscape material cut back from the house, you're preserving the waterproofing integrity that currently exists. The other thing that happens is when we let these foundation plants get larger, is they damage our screens. They also have the potential in high winds of breaking glass. I have seen that take place. You may think that's not the case, but I have seen that occur. It will crack a window or break glass. So it's creating damage that just doesn't need to occur. We simply need to pay attention to these plants and take action as we move into these high wind seasons. Now, let's go one step further. We've talked about some things that are existing, but let's talk about planting. If you're looking to do something that is absolutely new or you're in a new home and you're putting your first plantings in, you want to think about the plants and the products on the front side. How large will they become? What kind of root system do they have? What kind of maintenance will I have in three, five, seven, ten years? You don't want to have the kind of issues I've just talked about where you've planted a tree that should have been dwarf-type tree in an area and it's a tree that will make its way to 60, 70, 80 feet with a 60-foot canopy on it in 10 years. And it grows over the garage with a root system that's undermining the foundation or causing problems with your concrete slab, sidewalk, patio, whatever you have. If you're not thinking about those things now, folks, you're going to pay the price later. That's when these become a liability. Trees, shrubs, landscaping in general, in my book, should be an asset. And when it starts creating damage or has the potential, it becomes a liability. So never let your assets become a liability. Take care of what you have in place. When it comes time to plant, replace, or plant new, be sure you understand the plant product and how it will develop over time. The, the Some of the things that we fail to recognize also is the amount of water, the shade, and sunlight that many of these plants require. We will put products in on the shady side of the house that require full sun, and then we fight it constantly and wonder why it doesn't grow and develop. We will do the other, something that a plant a plant or a tree that may want partial uh, shade or may want some cooler areas, and we have it in bright sunlight. It doesn't do so well. So always read the labels when you're buying trees, shrubs, and other plants. It's no different with trees and shrubs as it is with grass. If we have a yard that has a full canopy of trees and we're constantly fighting to get the grass to develop, it may be because we have the, planted the wrong type of grass seed or sod, one that requires full sun, and then here we have almost no sun because it's in a shady area. So as a homeowner, there's so many things that we can do in and around our yard. I, again, I always want plants and landscaping to be an asset, not a liability. 
One last item. Many of us have green thumbs, and I'm not one of those people. But for those of you who do, and you constantly plant, plant, plant to the point that the yard just looks like this lavish garden, and you have the time and enjoy spending countless hours maintaining it, you need to be aware that if the day comes you go to sell that, that could become a liability to many people who say, I love it, but it's just too much work, I don't have the time, and I don't have the money. So I want you to treat all of your landscaping much like you do other elements of the house. Think about what your needs are, the time and money you have to care for it, and pay attention to when it moves from being an asset to a liability. I've often seen, as far as landscape is concerned, that in some cases less actually works out to be more. In many cases it does, but I think you have to blend that with the style of the home, the setting that it's in, and above all, your personal lifestyle. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. He's here answering the questions that are important to you. Today's homeowner will be doing that coming up next as we continue with this edition of Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Along with Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, I'm Jim Britt. If you have questions for Ken, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975, or you can send emails to our website, and that's KenTheContractor.com. Our next mailbag question comes to us from Sharon in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Now, Sharon listens to us on WKCW, 1420 AM, out of Manassas. And, Sharon, we appreciate your writing to us. You've got a little bit of an issue regarding how to get some special woodwork done. My husband and I are getting ready to remodel our 120-year-old house. We're not doing any structural work, just wall repairs, painting, replacing miscellaneous trim and floor covering. Fortunately, the electrical work was upgraded about 15 years ago by the prior owner. We've checked the lumber yards, and we cannot find the profile of base and door trim. It looks like some special trim around a few windows and some other areas that we will need also. Do you have anywhere to go to buy these special pieces of wood, anything that even looks close, or do we have to put multiple pieces together to make this trim? We need your help in this area. Thanks for your advice. Well, Sharon, that's not a question that I get very often, but I do have some direction for you. You've given me enough information telling me that you live in a 120-year-old home. Now, that means the original trim was all handmade. That also tells me that enough time has gone by that some of the trim may have been changed out or modified on its own. I want you to do a couple of items. First off, I want you to measure some of the trim thickness because typically as we moved into more modern times, trim material became thinner. It also became a little shorter, but mostly you'll notice a difference in the thickness. If you can't simply look at the wood and tell one is an old style versus a newer style, judge by the thickness. Also see what the majority of the trim looks like in the house because it's not likely, it's possible, but it's not likely that all the trim, meaning the casing on the doors, the windows, the baseboard, any crown molding, that all of that has been changed over time. So you need to get a feel for what is the original material. And then there is hope for you because you are not likely to find that at any big box store or even a local specialty store given the age of it. What you need to do is take that original trim to one of your local millwork shops and have them custom mill that. Now, most shops that do this on a regular basis have knives, which are what the blades are called, already made up, manufactured for just about every profile of old-style trim that we would see in certain parts of the country. If they don't, they can actually make a knife or a blade to that exact profile and mill an identical piece of trim for each piece for you. That'll cost you a few dollars, but if you're really set on restoring this home to its original beauty and to the original style and trim material that's there, 
That is the way to do it. You can spend hours, weeks, days, and much longer traveling all over your region looking for this in any of your local stores, and I promise you, you're not going to find it. So if you even find the profile, you're not likely to find the same thickness. Bottom line is, find a local mill workshop. I'm sure there's at least one, two, three, many more in your area. Get some competitive prices on this. Don't just take the first price. Find out what your price per lineal foot will be. Determine what type of wood you're going to be putting back. Are you matching the same if it's oak or cherry or walnut? Or if you're going to paint it, you may use a less expensive lumber like poplar and still have it milled to the same profile. Paint it and go on about your business. But that will give you the best original look. Good luck to you in your shopping, and thanks again for writing to us. Very good. Thank you, Sharon. Don't forget your emails go to our website again. That's KenTheContractor.com. You can also friend us on Facebook at KenTheContractor, and you can follow Ken on Twitter at Ken Answers. Our contact number is 800-614-2975. That's the number you dial if you have a question for Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor. Again, that number is 800-614-2975. Let's go back to the phones. It's Charlie who's ready to join us right now. Hey, Charlie, you're on the air with Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor. question has to do with exterior masonry. I have a uh, on the a long porch back of my house, and which is supported by center block columns and then underneath that is another concrete porch and there's masonry on the exterior wall is uh some of the masonry has a white looking film on it uh guesses uh uh effervescence could be if 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 it's not if it's not just chalk from the paint then chances are pretty good that's exactly what it is it's from moisture getting inside the block well it hasn't it hasn't (laughs) been painted so what i was going to do is power wash the outside, and then I was thinking about painting the masonry so it wouldn't look so drab and gray looking. And my main question was after I power wash it, would it be wise to use a oil base primer sealer, or what's your thoughts? Well, first you're going to be hard pressed to find much available in the way of oil base. The the paint industry is getting away from it, uh, partly because of environmental issues and government regulations, it's still available. I'm just saying you will not find it readily available in every possible paint supply uh, house out right. there today. The the first thing I want to suggest to you, because you're describing to me the efflorescence that's, uh, again, this, this white uh, substance that bleeds from the back forward. It comes out on the face of the block, and that's what you're telling me you have, I believe. Yeah, here and there. It's not, yeah, it's, not it may- bad, but you can tell it. And... That is typical of moisture getting inside the block material, and then those that's a result of, of uh, minerals bleeding through the block. You want to be certain that you don't have water entering from your porch getting into these block piers or block columns. That's the first right. thing you want to resolve, because if you paint it with any type of paint, then you're going to find that it starts to blister, and the paint right. will not bond long term. So that's the first thing I would do is investigate that and be sure that any moisture that's coming out is strictly because the block has never been painted and it's moisture that's getting into the block proper. Uh, but that's just a, a word of caution. I'd hate to hear you call back here in a few weeks saying, hey, I painted this, and now I've got all these bubbles and blisters out here. So be right. sure that's not occurring. And then beyond that, you want to use first a block primer, which is a block fill. Now, this is going to be a, a very heavy uh, or thick product, and it's designed to seal, seal the pores, and I'll use that term loosely, the open spaces, in uh, concrete or cinder block. And then you want to come back on top of that with your finished paint. And my recommendation from experience uh, is that you're going to have better luck with a water base, with a latex base, than an oil base on that. 
And that's okay. partly because you're still exposed to the outside. If you do get a little bit of moisture in the, the block columns from the patio or the concrete areas around it, right. the latex still has a tendency to breathe. Now, it will still blister, but not like an oil-based paint. An oil-based paint's going to operate like a plastic bag. If you get any moisture behind it, it doesn't get out until you peel it off and let the moisture or you relieve that moisture. Right. And then the finish, as far as flat or semi-gloss or satin, would just be up to my choice. Is that correct? Really, it is. It That doesn't have a lot to do with the performance in this particular scenario. It's more of what you want to see in terms of that finished sheen. If you've got an area where you have the potential for a great deal of uh, fingerprints, if you've got a shop nearby where you may have grease on your fingers, uh, a product that has a little more of a sheen is more washable, easier to clean than the flat. That's one of the big advantages to it. But if it's just a patio patio area and you're sitting there enjoying life and taking in the sun or sunset and you don't have too many concerns, uh, I don't have any strong recommendation one way or the other if you're not concerned about washing it down. The biggest thing you've told me that, again, I caution you about is be sure – you don't have another water problem uh, with water getting right. into the columns because if you do, you're going to create a bigger headache for you later having painted these columns and see it peeling and flaking and it'll still bubble. So, I mean, again, the latex has a tendency to breathe, as I said, with minor moisture, but with a large amount of moisture, it'll still blister mm-hmm. and it'll peel off. All right. Thank you very much. Well, thank you and good luck. Okay, bye-bye. Take care. Charlie, we appreciate your call. Don't forget, if you want to reach Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, you can reach him anytime at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or email questions to kenthecontractor.com. We'll take a quick break and be right back with more. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Well, welcome back. You're listening to Ken the Contractor along with Ken Patterson. I'm Jim Britt. Time now on Ken the Contractor for us to bring you in the news. Weekly, Ken brings you products, trends, tips, and services that are important for you to make informed decisions about your home maintenance, purchases, remodeling, and new construction. In the news this week has both good and bad news. The great news really is that there are going to be a lot of job opportunities as we continue to move through this year and upcoming years in the housing industry as far as construction is concerned. What we're seeing nationwide based on recent trends and surveys from NAHB and other national organizations is a continuing increase in housing starts. We see those numbers rising at a more rapid pace than we have seen in a long period of time. We see consumer confidence across the country. Jobs tend to be much more stable. People are preparing and, in fact, are contracting to buy homes. Now, That's the good news. The bad news for us as consumers, though, is that we may have to wait longer to be able to move into that house. We may pay more, and we may find that the builders and contractors that we are working with incur certain delays. The reason being is that we find inventories low across the country. Manufacturers and wholesalers have depleted their inventory rather than pay taxes and other fees on inventory just sitting in warehouses and tying up working capital. So as the industry continues to heat up, they're going to have to catch up in terms of producing items such as drywall and doors and windows and shingles, all of these other items. Now, it doesn't mean that it's in great short supply. Don't want to give anyone a fear of that, but what I'm telling you is these are the trends that these national surveys see, that right now, overall nationwide, it's limited to pockets of the country where we're seeing labor shortages. But as the industry continues to increase, we're going to see that occur more and more. Based on recent NAHB surveys, what we find that will be in the highest demand. So for those of you that are thinking about getting back in the construction industry, this could be a real positive. First off, 
Framing carpenters, whether direct employees of the builder or working for a subcontract company, these are the folks that actually put up the frame structure on our houses, are already in short supply in certain locations around the nation. The expectation is that will continue to be the case because we have fewer and fewer people working in that area. This holds true also for trim carpentry. These are the folks that install doors, windows, casing, those type items. Masonry contractors doing brick, block, stone, painters, roofers, electricians, HVAC, which is heating, ventilation, and air conditioning systems, mechanical contractors, and specialty people. Excavators, people operating the heavy equipment to dig footings and degrade sites and put in subdivisions. These are just some of the areas that these national surveys are showing us that as we move through the balance of this year and well into next year, we are likely to see labor shortages continue across the country. That will have an impact, again, of increasing higher the prices for what we pay for our homes, causing us to wait longer to find a builder to build that home and perhaps creating additional time needed for that builder to construct the project as well. So if you're thinking about buying, Keep this in mind, not encouraging that you jump into something right now that you're not ready for, but be prepared as this moves a little more year after year now into a seller's market and a little less of a buyer's market. That's today's In the News. All right. Thank you, Ken. And let's go to the phones right now. It's Rob who's been waiting patiently. He's got a question for Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor. Hi, Rob. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. Uh, I have uh, an older farmhouse. Probably the front of it was built maybe around 1915, somewhere along in there. It's been around a couple of years. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the the wall under the under the house looked like it was made with say river jack, and and it was uh, had a mortar that was poured, uh, I guess, with the river jack, and that was the. The foundation, the river jack's probably no more than six inches. Most of it's rounded type stones. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, over the last few years, evidently, and, and it's, it's, oh, uh, there's a front porch that's built over it. Okay. So there's a, there's a crawl space as you get under the porch to see this, this foundation. Well, over the years, evidently some groundhogs have gotten up under there and they've been working on that. The mortar, now the mortar doesn't seem to be very hard. It must be, I don't know, there's a lot of sand in it. Yeah, that's not surprising to me. That's what I see in some of the older mortar. Okay. Well, anyway, they've been digging in this stuff, and they've dug away a lot of of, uh, the smaller river jack out of the side of the wall. And actually, in one spot, they've actually dug a hole through the wall into the dirt cellar. They're aggressive. So, uh I don't know exactly how to approach fixing this. I know uh, I have to keep the groundhogs out of there. That's number one, and we we think we've got that thing solved. But one of the possibilities that I thought about was was taking uh, maybe one of these guys that have these poured concrete uh, forms, steel forms, putting it in there right up against the existing wall, and then pumping concrete uh, in. You know, so it could fill in all the irregularities around where these stones have been pulled out. Well, I think you're right on track because if you hadn't made that comment, that's where I would go. And depending on how large it is, this may be something that you can do yourself with plywood forms. Um, I don't know how long it is, how tall it is, uh, but 
you're on the right track in terms of reinforcing that. Uh, first off, the mortar that you're talking about, in, in my experience, especially in our listing area, uh, structures built in, in many cases in, in the 1800s, early 1900s, you find a high concentration of sand in, in the mortar, which makes it fairly soft. And you can see that with weathering in many applications or many instances. But uh, to, you don't have a structural failure at this point, do you? I didn't ask that. Uh, no, not not that I'm aware of. I don't I don't okay. see any settling yet. But it it just seems like the whole the whole wall is is crumbled and it's all very irregular from having I guess they dug on it or whatever. Yeah, I, I would think that would be my approach. Again, would be to end up with some type of form work. Again, whether these areas are small enough that you could do it yourself with plywood, or you can rent these forms, or you can go to some of the specialty contractors that do formed and poured wall systems. Now, what you need to keep in mind when you stand a system up like that, if you're you're looking to reinforce both sides of this by setting forms, say the full length of it and the full height, and encapsulate this that these forms have to be tied together. There are metal ties that would have to go through this wall in order to actually secure your forms and to set the, the thickness of those forms in order to hold the, uh, the weight of the concrete when that is poured. Sure. Now, if you have smaller areas where you can use plywood and you may cut several sheets of this to fill those, then there are other products like snap ties that you can buy that will adhere to either side of that and to make that hold that form fast. But that would be my approach precisely because it's not going to heal itself. It will not get any better. And even if you're able to keep all the critters out that are undermining and getting into this, you still have a weakened foundation. Okay. And in these old structures, you're not going to find any concrete foundation down below that as a rule. That is your foundation. Yeah, because it's a dirt cellar. And, right. And uh, uh, the 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 foundation that, that's crumbling is actually just sitting up on the dirt wall. Yeah, I mean, and that's typical of something that would be that old. I've been down on enough of these and have excavated some, and, and I realized the way they were constructed. One thing I can say is they've lasted a long, long time, though, to be a structure with no foundation the way we build today. Well, that's true. So I, I, my hat's off to you. I think you're on the right track. Okay. Thank you, sir. Yes, sir. Take care. Thank you, Rob. We do appreciate your call. Don't forget, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That'll wrap up this hour of Ken the Contractor, the show where folks come for professional answers. If you have a question about your home, inside or out, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975 or online at KenTheContractor.com. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. A house is what you build, a home is what you make it. Ken is here each week at this time answering the questions that are important to you, today's homeowner. Let's go back to the phone lines, get another question for Ken. It's Jim. Hi, Jim. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. Last summer when we had the heat, my air conditioning unit downstairs, the ducts were sweating uh, with water, you know, kind of dripping. And I don't know if it was due to the extreme temperatures this year, we haven't had that problem so far. It is a new system, and we just finished our basement. Um, should we have wrapped the air ducts, or what do you think would cause our air ducts to sweat? I'd be interested in your answer, and because is a problem that when it sweats, it drips on our drywall and damages it. Jim, there are two possible solutions. First, you have recognized what I believe to be the problem, and that is the lack of insulation on ductwork. And I'm assuming that this is sheet metal ductwork. Anytime we install metal ductwork in any cavity, any area where the temperature surrounding that ductwork, meaning on the exterior, 
is going to be substantially different than the airflow going through it, then it should be insulated. The reason being is exactly what you're seeing, and that is that condensation forms. In the summertime, you have extremely cold air moving through the inside of the ductwork. If the outside of that ductwork happens to be in an environment that is quite warm, 70, 80, 90 degrees, and is exposed to a degree of humidity, you're going to have condensation that's formed. I think we all understand that. Insulation clearly will resolve the problem for you. You may also have this duct in a cavity that is relatively airtight under normal conditions, but yet there is a hole somewhere that's allowing this warmer temperature and humidity to get inside. For example, you may have it in a designed duct chase. So I would suggest to you that if you can't easily insulate it, that you look at ways that you can seal these openings and keep a more constant temperature on the inside. But you're right on track with what's causing the problem. I think if you can do one of those two items, you're going to eliminate it because long term you'll continue to have issues with the drywall. You'll see that the drywall, in some cases, corner bead and tape will peel and flake and separate. You will also notice over time that mold and mildew will form. So it will never heal itself. You just have to resolve the problem. We appreciate you calling and thanks for listening. Thank you. All right, time for our green building update. What's the topic this week? When I ask most people what green building means to them, the one thing that really comes to mind that I hear over and over again is energy efficiency. And, you know, that's really great that we are thinking about the efficiency of our home because it does two things. One, it helps us conserve on our dollars what we're paying out every month for heating and cooling expense, but it also helps us as a nation preserve our fossil fuels and it prevents us from having to build as many power and substations and various things that relate to our infrastructure. So it's good that we think energy conservation when we think green building. But one of the things that we don't often think about is the idea behind reclaiming, recycling, repurposing, and reusing products that we already have. Now, not only do we save energy when we do these things, but we prevent so many items from ending up in the landfill. And that's what I want you to think a little bit about if you've got a home remodeling project coming up or you are looking to put on an addition, look at some of the optional materials that are available to you. For example, and I've done this myself, I've done it in library buildings in the commercial world and single-family residential homes as well, consider purchasing old or reclaimed lumber. Now, this is lumber that may have been in buildings 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago that has recently been torn down. There are companies that salvage this material and are prepared to sell it back to you. And you're saying, well, that's great, but this may not fit exactly what I'm looking for. Many of these old structures were constructed of heavy timbers. And I've taken these heavy timbers and we've taken them to sawmills. We've had them recut to use for trim lumber. We've actually had them made so that they will work for door jams, for casing, for base, for window frames and casing, for beams, both structural and non-structural, false beams, decorative panels, wainscoting, chair rail, crown molding. If you can think of it going into a house, you can use materials that have been around for a long period of time and have them milled to meet your specification. Now, I want to tell you, folks, you're not going to find any better quality lumber than some of this old, old lumber that's out there. Not only is it well-seasoned, it's hard, but it came from old-growth timber, which we don't have today, which is one reason we see a lot of shrinkage on some of our newer materials when you put it in, crank up the AC or the heat, you pull the moisture out of it, and it shrinks and it twists and it warps and it splits. It's not coming from old growth timber. So this is a real advantage. You do two things. One, you use something that has been around for a long period of time, gives you a little talking point, maybe some bragging rights about these items in your home, but it also lets you do your part to conserve energy, to not be wasteful. So again, these items don't 
wind up in a landfill or being burnt somewhere, and it just lets you feel a little better about what you're doing for the local environment, the local economy, and for your nation. So when you think green building, once again, I want you to think reclaim, recycle, repurpose all the materials that you can. All right. I think the time to sneak in one more quick call before we wrap up this hour of Ken the Contractor at 800-614-2975. And it's Leona. She wants to talk about ceiling fans. Hi, Leona. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. Hello. Hi there. I need to know, um, do they make a fan for, do they make fans for seven foot ceilings? That is a very good question. I don't know that I have seen any that will give you the proper clearance, because the minimum clearance that I, I recall seeing, and it varies under different codes, is going to be, I believe, 6, 8 to 7 feet in that range. Yeah. And if you've got a 7-foot ceiling, even these ceiling huggers will take up about 6 inches. The, the blades may p- be positioned in a different fashion, but you still have the fan motor and the housing. Yeah. What I would uh, certainly what I would do would be to look at the marketplace. If you find one, it's going to be extremely rare to find one that's that tight to the ceiling. The other reason behind that is not just the motor housing, but the blades have to have enough room or enough distance off the ceiling to be able to cir- to cycle or circulate that air. Yeah. Meaning that if it's extremely tight to the ceiling, there's no space between the blade and the ceiling for air to get in behind or above the blades, either in discharge or to be pulling it off the ceiling. Do you have a particular room issue that you're, you're trying to address uh, just air circulation in? Uh, yes, in my dining room. It ha- I have a ceiling light, and that's the only uh, really uh, good light that I have in there. Okay, but now is your ceiling seven feet at that point, or are you thinking something needs to hang below the light? It's, uh, well, I would like to have one that had light, that, you know, that had lights on it. Okay, the light fixture can be lower than these these minimum heights for uh, fan blades. It, if you have an eight foot ceiling height in that room, then there are plenty of fans that will do what you want. That will work there and allow you to put a light on the bottom of it, and that would be fine. I think all I have is seven foot. Okay, is this a, a I'll say standard house construction? Yes, it was supposed to be, I reckon. Okay. Well, <laughs> I bought it. It was already built. I think this house was built in 1909 because when um, I had uh, put a roof on it in um, 2000 or 2001, something okay. around that, and there was a newspaper under <laughs> the old roof. You always love finding stuff like that as a builder. Yeah, and it had 1909 on that newspaper. Well, if anything, from that era, ceilings were typically higher than lower. But what you want to do is just get your tape measure out and check that ceiling height. Uh-huh. I believe if, if you're going to find that it's seven six seven eight, if it's eight feet, you have no issue at all. You may be fine even if you've got a ceiling that's seven six to seven eight. If it's only seven feet, I think it's going to be a little too tight for anything that's out there for it to be safe. So we appreciate your call. Good luck on that. Thank you, Leona. And that'll wrap up this hour of Ken the Contractor. If you have a question about your home inside or out, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975 or online at KenTheContractor.com. For Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, I'm Joe Brett. Thanks for joining us. Once again, you've been listening to Ken the Contractor.
You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. Every weekend at this time, Ken the Contractor, Ken Patterson is here taking your calls. Don't forget, you can friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow him on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you're looking for home improvement information at any time, go to KenTheContractor.com.